Welcome back to the Valley to Peak Nutrition Podcast. This is the first Q&A of 2024 and the first one that Lindsay will be on. We've got a few different questions that folks have written into us that we are going to tackle. We are doing this between nap time, so we'll see how many we get through, but there's five great questions for us. First up, this person said, I wake up really early to exercise and don't have the time or don't like doing something on a full stomach, but I've also noticed that I have a hard time getting through the whole workout with enough energy. Any suggestions or am I just stuck? That's a good question. And this is one um, that has actually come over a few different times. I think I think people are realizing like, if I don't get this in early, I'm probably not going to get it in. So they tend to wake up and try to get it in very first thing. It's naturally going to be harder to try to eat before that because you're already getting up earlier. So there are a few ways I think that you can mitigate this and we can or at least improve it. And we can always talk about, you know, I, I think it depends on how how important it is to you. How in-depth do you want to be? How, how, how much do you want to lean towards optimal versus practical? The first thing that I would do is I would make sure that the meal that you eat as your last meal the day before you exercise has carbs in it. And this is very contradictory to what's floating around out in the internets right now about nutrition. And almost always when someone tries to change their nutrition plan at the start of a new year, they cut out carbs. So people will eat like a salad with chicken the night before. They'll try to wake up at 4.30 a.m. to be at a 5 a.m. exercise class. And maybe they start out strong, but 20 minutes in, it's like the will is there, but there is no gas in the legs. And a lot of that is because... There's no, there's literally no gas in the legs. You have fuel tanks in your legs. You have fuel tanks in your liver and those, your, your body is requiring the fuel from those to propel you to get through that workout. So if you don't have time to eat beforehand, I would make sure that your evening meal the day prior to exercise includes some form of carbohydrate. The other option that you've got is if it's and I would say this is a both and, meaning you could do that and also do this. If you wake up at, let's say, 4.30 and you've got a 5 a.m. exercise class, takes you 20 minutes to get there, I would have a small dose of carbohydrates that are going to get into your fuel system soon. Now, of course, like the most obvious thing to recommend has kind of been synonymous with, with Valley to Peak is Gator or, uh, I'm sorry, Gummy Bears. But it could be really anything like that, something that is fast to digest. You don't want a lot of protein beforehand. You don't want a lot of fat. You don't want a lot of fiber. Those things tend to slow digestion and you probably won't even get the fuel until the workout's done. So you want things like dried fruit, gummy bears, even a glass of orange juice, a handful of grapes, a handful of raisins, whatever. We're not talking about a full on meal here but something to give you some fuel prior to getting to the exercise class. Not that I have any better answers or even solutions to a lot of this. I just, I find it tricky as well. I kind of my routine when I'm, you know, consistently going on jogs a few times a week was to get up, like have something, you mentioned having something, you know, not your full blown breakfast yet, because then there's just too much food. Or if you do get up, have something, carby you know a bowl of cereal toast even and then go um but i know like 
I don't know, it's, I guess, a joke amongst friends of like, you know, we get up early and you have a cup of coffee and even making sure that that is worked itself through the system before you go (laughs) kind of saves everybody a whole lot of heartache. But it's tricky. I think the early morning thing, even though that's often the only time for a lot of families is it throws a wrench in in the works a little bit. It it definitely can. And I'll say like, so for, for you, for example, you wake up and your schedule is such that you wake up, you have some stuff to do with the boys early in the morning, you take Grant to school, and then you've got like a window of time where you can squeeze activity in or go for a walk or whatever. In those scenarios, if you're hungry when you wake up, you've got the luxury to have a full-blown meal ahead of time, right? And kind of the marker, the time the time cutoff that you're looking for is one hour and three hours. And like, here's the caveats. If you're planning to work out or exercise of any kind within an hour of the time that it currently is, you want something easy to digest or you want to load up on your carbs, load up meaning have an appropriate amount based on exercise the day prior. If you have the luxury of time and it's going to be your your workout is planned for three hours from the current time, you've got the luxury to have, you know, a, a more regular meal, half a bagel and some eggs or Greek yogurt and a couple slices of toast or a bowl of cereal and, you know, whatever else it is that you want to include as a combination to that. But those are good markers. The other thing that I would say is this, sometimes nutrition is not going to fix everything. If you're starting a brand new workout program, even if you are an experienced exerciser, like you've been lifting weights or training for a really long time, but you're entering a new program, it's going to take a while for your body to adapt to that. So it could very well be that that tired feeling that you're hitting, you know, partway through the workout, is because the body's not adapted to that new workout. The other thing that I would suggest, and I had to learn this kind of the hard way, and you can maybe speak to this even with your running, is you have to make sure that the perceived exertion, how hard you're going out of the gate, is appropriate to get through the whole thing. If you go nuts the first 20 minutes in a 60-minute workout, there's not a nutrition plan on the planet that's going to save you from that. And I think a great, like a great little mantra that I've learned over the years myself, and this was actually from our friends at Atomic Athlete in Texas, is aiming for something that's DBD. Your intensity should be difficult but doable, right? You shouldn't be ugly exercising. <laughs> your cadence or the stroke on the bike or the way that you're lifting, it should be very, it should be very fluid, very methodical. You're not like just throwing stuff around to get through the reps or just all over the board. I think a good example of this, I thought of this the other night when you were watching The Biggest Loser, is those folks, when they start out, don't even get me sidetracked on this show, but when they start working out at the beginning of a show, their cadence is good, they're great. But then these people put them through four, five, six hour workouts on very little fuel. And you can see like, they're just death clutching the treadmill, trying to hang on. Their feet are all over the place. They're stumbling off themselves. And usually the camera pans to them like falling off the treadmill while it's rolling. And that is evidence of just complete and utter exhaustion. That's ugly exercise. They're so exhausted that there's no intention, intentionality to the movements. So if you're coming out of the gate that hard, then it very well could be that that's the issue as opposed to a nutrition problem. So if you do think it could be nutrition related, you might be maybe not sure why you're not able to get through the exercise or 
the jog or the class or the whatever, is there a way to maybe have a hunch that that's what it is versus, oh, I didn't go to the bathroom after having coffee and that's what this is. And that's why I'm getting a side ache or is it, I mean, this person's talking about energy, but is there a way to kind of have a feel that it's probably nutrition? Like, will your body always hit a wall midway or if it's food related or, you know, not having enough energy related, will it like look the same versus, does that make sense? It makes sense. And I think you have to take yourself through that personal algorithm of like, okay, is this a new program? No, it's not a new program. Am I, or have I been intentionally not eating as many carbohydrates as usual? No, I've been eating pretty much the same amount. Am I coming too hard right out of the gate? No, I feel like I'm at a pretty manageable place and I feel like each rep or each stroke of the pedal or each whatever is very smooth, intentional, and fluid. Then yeah, at that point, I'd probably dive off and look deeper at nutrition and see if it's something related to that. If the answer to any of those are like, uh, nutrition's the same, carbohydrate intake's the same, but boy, I've, just, I, you know, I've, I've read about this high-intensity interval training and I've just been coming trying to come out of the gate like a complete smoke show. It's like, well, but maybe I'd back off of the, the, the intensity as opposed to looking at nutrition. But yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a good question and it's one that's come up quite a bit. So definitely worth, uh, worth covering. Next. This person writes in and says, I don't really have a specific exercise goal like climbing a mountain or something like that. I just want to be comfortable, healthy, and capable to enjoy my aging years and keep up with my kids. It is the nutrition element that I believe I'm missing and I can't seem to conquer it. Will you program, will your program help something like that? That's a good question. So the heart of the question is this, and this has come up a lot because I'm so grateful that the word about Valley to Peak has kind of gotten out there. And so, you know, you'll have a friend who maybe is interested in mountain stuff say, Hey, I did this program with this program and it worked really well for it. Here's the name, but the friend isn't necessarily pursuing something like that. And the question is always well, like, is this for me? Because I don't fit what you're advertising as, you know, these mountain objectives. And the answer to that is yes, because, and I do not, I don't want this to be like a sales pitch. I just think it's worth covering because it get asked, it's getting asked more and more. Though we do help people for that, really, I would say what the hub and the heart of it is, is like, we just teach people about nutrition based on where they are, what their goals are and what they really want out of life. And at the end of the day, like I would argue that even though a lot of our verbiage and, and stuff is around training and it obviously is a, a, a thing that's very close to me and there are people that are training for stuff. I would say that most people, even those engaged in that activity, really at the end of the day, just talk about wanting more energy to keep up with their kids and to be good at work and to be a great spouse and, and honestly, just to be good at life. So yeah, I don't want to exhaust this, but I will just say that, yes, you know, our, our main focus is we want to tailor a plan towards whatever you've got and no, you don't have to be some, you know, crazy mountain athlete pursuing a big ultra or a backcountry hunt or whatever to, uh, to fit that. I think it's worth noting too, that whether you're training for something big or small or nothing at all, or whether it's tied to weight loss or health or, you know, health concerns, trying to, you know, remedy that or whatever, I think just hearing kind of your side of the conversations the year that you were home 
with co not with COVID, the year that you worked from home when COVID first hit and even hearing how you answered a tough question or you know, listening to podcasts or watching videos of you with different groups or whatnot, no matter what the group is, no matter what the audience is, the majority of your job is explaining what food does to the body and how to to properly utilize it. It's whether someone is an athlete doesn't mean that they understand food. <laughs> whether someone is a stay-at-home mom that just wants to like change her body up and become a little bit healthier after having kids, like it seems like the misconceptions or the needs are really pretty similar with what people need from your side of it. Yeah, I would say that that's I would say that that's true and I think that a lot of times the quote bigger questions about nutrition that people have are really points of clarity. Here's what I've heard, I don't know if it's true, is it true and if not what should I do? Right? Like here's all of this stuff that I hear all of the time. And honestly, I've been exposed to so much now that I have no idea what direction to go. Can you can you build me a, a map? Can you give me some wisdom, some guidance, whatever? And that's you know that's what we spend the vast majority of our time on and going through the three phases with everyone. But yeah, really, it's it's uh it's for everyone. I think that's been the fun part is like it it's ranged in range it's ranged in age from young young uh to anybody who fits this category i love you old old uh, and it's been it's been fun so this person said i like skiing in the winter time but notice i get altitude sickness even at moderate elevations like nine thousand feet is this possible is there anything i can do from a nutrition standpoint to help if i had have read this several years ago i'd have probably said ah boy i don't know about nine thousand feet but there's been a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, but several pretty key research articles come out over the years that cite this specifically. People go to Colorado, they ski 9,000 feet, they get altitude sickness. And normally we think of like Everest Base Camp, which is at 17,000 or Denali or some of these other really high mountains is causing altitude sickness, but it's possible to get it there. So the answer to that part is is definitely yes. Is there anything from a nutrition standpoint to help? That's a very loaded question. And I'll answer this in two ways. Nothing's going to fix it, right? Nothing's, there is, there is no way to shortcut this beyond getting to altitude and acclimating early. There are obviously pharmacological agents like Diamox that can help. And we had Chantel from Uphill Athlete on. She talked about a sauna protocol that you can do, but I mean, these are all kind of workarounds to a, a bigger, obviously a bigger issue. Two things that I think are, three things, let's say, that are, I think, important in navigating this is number one, and most of these are showing up prepared as opposed to trying to backpedal and make up for when you're there, but show up and remain hydrated when you're there. It's very easy when you're cold to forget to drink, as stupid as that sounds. But being dehydrated is only going to make worse the symptoms and feelings of getting altitude sickness. Number two, one of the first things to usually go whenever you get to altitude and have altitude sickness is your appetite. Just goes in the gutter. You want to stop eating and you need to continue to eat, continue to provide fuel to your brain. You were asking earlier about, is there anything that we can do to know if it's nutrition? If you're hitting a wall in exercise and getting dizzy, like that's a key thing there, you'll feel that at altitude. 
but making sure that you're eating is an easy way to delineate is this just me not eating or is this altitude because if you've been eating you can rule that out and know okay i need a couple more days to acclimate before i really you know start going or maybe you feel well enough to go even with the altitude sickness but that's the second thing the third thing and maybe the most critical would be your iron stores right so Iron stores are tied to carrying oxygen, which is obviously something that you need whenever there's less oxygen available. You need that to be functioning as well as possible. So making sure that you're in a good status before getting there would be important. The most obvious way to do that would be to supplement, but most people want, you know, quote, natural ways to get their iron in. And I think there's a few kind of key things because this is a huge rabbit trail and I don't want to just go off on a tangent. So here's the, here's the couple of main things. There's two types of iron. One of them, our body uptakes very, very well and uses very well. One of them, it doesn't. The type of foods that have the type of iron that the body uses very well are predominantly found in meat, animal proteins. The type of iron that is not used very well, not absorbed very good is found in plants. What's some examples of that? ground beef, ground elk, ground venison, whatever, high in iron. Spinach and other leafy greens have iron, but it's absorbed very poorly. If you really want to dive off in the weeds, this is called heme iron and non-heme iron. Heme is highly absorbable, non-heme is not. The second thing that you can do to actually increase how much of it your body takes up is to cook it with a source or take it with a source of vitamin C. This is even true of if you're taking like elemental form through a supplement. What does that look like in a meal? Ground meat, spaghetti sauce, vitamin C in the tomatoes from the spaghetti sauce, high iron in the ground meat. Uh, fajitas, ground chicken or chicken, uh, cut up chicken pieces or uh, cut up the backstrap, whatever bell peppers, high in vitamin C. So there's a lot of different ways. Same with like an Asian orange chicken, orange is obviously high in vitamin C and then whatever type of meat source you use for that high in iron. So you can make really practical solutions and be ticking the boxes on this. But I think that making sure that you have good iron stores going to altitude is also important. There are some really unique situations where the iron intake or the iron needs are so high that it can be challenging to meet with uh, food. Like a couple that come to mind would be anybody that has like heavy menstruation or anybody who's pregnant, the baby robs everything from you, which both our boys did to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's, I said I wouldn't side trail. I feel like I have, but um those are really the three main things that you want to pay attention to, whether you're, you feel like, you know, it's not going to be an issue at 9,000 feet or you're going up to something like 17,000 feet. Those are about the, the, the biggest main things that you can check the boxes on when trying to eliminate any potential threats to getting altitude sickness. With the iron rabbit trail, didn't you also say not to have it with dairy? Wasn't that one of the, I feel like the days that I took the supplements while pregnant, it was like, have this with orange juice. And then the days that I didn't, it was like, oh, that's a good time to have a bowl of cereal or something. Yeah, iron and iron and calcium compete and same type of deal. You you know, one wins, one loses, meaning you absorb one really well. 
and the other one doesn't get absorbed very well. So they'll usually have you space those out whenever you're taking them. This one, when I saw this question, I don't know that I've ever had altitude sickness. I grew up in the mountains, so I maybe I'm just used to it. But I think, like you said, I'm not discounting this person or saying, well, it's not really altitude sickness. You just didn't eat enough. But I actually, while we were chatting, I looked up the symptoms of altitude sickness, and they're very similar to what happens to me when I don't, first of all, when I get dehydrated, when I don't drink enough water, it looks a lot like that. And also when... I've not had enough food in general, like just really low blood sugar. So um, it reminded me of the first hike that we ever went on together. And I think Kyle's first hike ever of his life. Um, we very much overpacked our packs. It was ridiculous. I think <laughs> for breakfast, you had, what did you have? Like a salad with no dressing, probably some salsa, like a small side salad size with salsa and an orange it would have been like a cup of yogurt with like 14 almonds. This is back with, <laughs> you were counting a little closer. Uh, for, you know, like very specific and water. Was that all you had? Oranges and yogurts and walnuts used to, or almonds used to be a really big deal. I'm feeling very vulnerable. <laughs> yes, that was, that was the year that I think I had moved here. Never been on any hike, dramatically underestimated what we were going to be doing way overpacked and way under eight. And I think I have referenced this before on the podcast, but it was that hike that sort of sparked my interest in this whole rabbit trail of what Valley to Peak now is. So it was miserable. And I remember thinking after we got done, I remember thinking for as many people that love this whole backpacking deal, I have got to be missing something. And I thought about the nutrition thing because I'd already I'd already knew, known and loved and dabbled in sports nutrition for like the main sports that you think of with basketball, football, soccer, blah, 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 running. And I thought that's got to have direct carryover into this. And then I think it was it was weeks later. It wasn't months. We went on the trip to the other place <laughs> and I loved it because I ate all sorts of stuff. I mean, just hammered all sorts of stuff and felt great. But I mean, you, for that first trip where we are like, you're going a few steps and sitting down every few steps, like I'm not doing okay. Very much the symptoms of altitude sickness, but also the symptoms of what I've experienced with low blood sugar, right? You're feeling lethargic. You can't focus. You don't want to eat. You feel not nauseous, like you're going to vomit, but just like I can't stomach anything right now. So I, I'm, again, not wanting to at all say that whoever wrote this question doesn't know the difference in altitude sickness and whatnot, but I, it just shows that diet can't hurt. Diet meaning, eat in, you know, intake of good nutrition can't hurt you. I remember the older gentleman that walked up, he's like, well, son, I think, I think you need to eat or drink something. And he like forced you to drink like a full sugar Gatorade. You're like, oh, and then like that night you had like what, like chocolate covered espresso beans and you ate my bag of freeze-dried lasagna and you're like man this is this is awesome i know i see why people <laughs> need this but i mean i don't know i guess altitude sickness it can't hurt to probably have good nutrition but also this falls in line really closely with what also happens if you do not fuel your body well enough yeah i i think if again sometimes getting to the heart of what the problem is is ruling out other things so if you've been eating you've been drinking, you are 
you know, you know that you've been intentional in increasing your iron stores ahead of time. And you've got this feeling that persists for a period of several days. And you have other little things like you wake up in the middle of the night gasping for air. Like all of a sudden you just don't have enough oxygen probably altitude sickness right and and then like and then you've got to decide okay is it worth staying at this altitude or dropping lower and acclimating and then trying to reapproach it again or are the symptoms just kind of meh to the point of where this is probably going to suck but i'm going to press on ahead anyway right i mean if you've only got six or seven days blocked out for an elk hunt you don't have a lot of you don't have five days to sit at a lower altitude acclimate and go hunt for two days like that's just Sometimes it just is what it is, but I think everybody's got to determine the risk. On that same note, though, I mean, there are stories of people getting flown out of the backcountry with really bad cases of altitude sickness to the point of where they started getting fluid on the brain, right? That's a common, that's a common thing that precipitates out of, out of being too high at altitude, not acclimating to it. Even in, in these, the altitudes that these folks were at were nothing crazy. You know, I mean, it was 10,000 feet and lower, but for whatever reason, they couldn't acclimate. And so, yeah, I think sometimes being able to get to the heart of an issue is really also ruling out other options. So the only other thing left is the issue at hand. But yeah, that that first hike was, man, that guy out hiked us <laughs> in a big way, even then. And and yeah, I, I remember like, I think that there was multi, there was all kinds of things. I did everything wrong in that hike. I mean, everything wrong. Everything that you could do wrong, <laughs> I did wrong on that hike, <laughs> looking back on it. And um, what a uh, what a learning experience that it was. And, and if they're listening, special thanks to Ron and Terry for all the food and services that they provided. Yeah, I, I ate everyone's meals and they had powdered Gatorade, which affectionately became known as blue juice. I still drink blue juice to this day. I love that stuff. All right. Next question is, is collagen a good source of protein? This came from you. Do you want to give any backstory to this? I will give backstory to this and I'll be fairly blunt because I don't know that most of the people that share these things with me even listen to this podcast. If they do, I still won't name names. I have been asking multiple questions about collagen and usually I come home and I was like, hey, what's the truth in this? Or why do pregnant people do extra collagen? Or why do people think that their baby was born with more hair because they had collagen? And he's like, where are you hearing these things? No, that's not true is usually the answer. So what I had heard, one friend a few years ago, probably four years ago, it was like, oh, I started taking collagen and I don't really know if it helps, but it can't hurt. And her thought, I think all of us were thinking collagen, skin, nails, whatever. I think they're thinking if I put some of this in a shake, I'm not going to have wrinkly skin. I could be wrong, but that's, I think, part of why people do it. But then recently, another friend, her baby has this full head of beautiful hair and we said, oh my gosh, look at all that hair. And well, yeah, probably because of all the extra collagen I had while I was pregnant. I said, oh, well, why did you take that? Like, I took iron because I was anemic and what we just talked about on the previous podcast, but you know, why collagen? Well, and there's all these ideas about what collagen, you know, provides. It was also recommended to me just for like skin quality. Does that make sense? Having stronger skin, I guess. So what, wh why is there the belief that if I, and I've only known women to do this, usually because men don't discuss their diet with me, but like, why do people believe that if I take collagen, 
I think extra, maybe it's powder. I don't know that it's beneficial. Yeah. So first the person that recommended you take collagen, though a healthcare provider sold it. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that collagen is a great example um, of the power of social media. And the one thing I'm going to preface before I even answer this, I'm going to preface all of my comments by saying this. You can never argue with someone's subjective beliefs, opinions, anecdotal evidence. Like I could never sit down with someone and say, you never felt the benefit of X, Y, and Z thing. I, I, I wasn't in their body. There's no, whether or not it actually worked is not for me to decide. Like if they experienced it, I can't deny them that. Right. So I'm going to say that you have a lot of people who will say, oh my God, I started taking this and boy, what an improvement in X, Y, and Z thing that I saw. So here's, here's the deep dive into it where, you know, why would people say that? Most people will say taking collagen is going to improve everything you said, the growth of hair, the growth of skin, the improvement of, or the less wrinkles of skin, um, the improvement of nail growth, et cetera, et cetera, because collagen protein is a main component of those things. So it makes sense where you would think, oh, well, if I take more of the thing that this is, then naturally it'll improve, it'll get better, or it'll help with whatever issue that I have, right? The reason why that's not entirely true, it lies in some of the nuances. And I was thinking about how to describe this earlier, and you can tell me if this makes sense or not. If you think about all of the colors that you could paint your kitchen, right? You go to Home Depot, you go over to the color aisle, and you see like this wall of color chips, all different shades of all these different colors. In reality, all of those colors are only made with eight different colors, right? It's a mixture of using red, blue, orange, green, right? Just small variations in each produce a different hue of all these different colors. Proteins are like that too, but we call those little individual colors amino acids. Collagen has different ratios of amino acids than something like whey protein or chicken breast or elk meat or what have you. Those ratios are less than some of those, some of those other proteins, especially when it comes to muscle building, right? There is really no literature that we can find, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna say a caveat after I say this that says, oh yes, absolutely, collagen supplementation will improve the growth of hair, skin, nails, etc. But again. Everybody, you've got a lot of people who will say anecdotally they've experienced something great with it. So it makes sense, but there's really nothing to suggest that it would support it yet. We do know that you have to ingest it. You can't put it on topically. It literally has to enter the bloodstream. And I think that it's important to go down this side rabbit trail. A lot of people think that collagen protein will improve muscle building. That is not true because of those ratios I described earlier talking about those color hues. It is It has insufficient quantities of all the amino acids that those other foods like whey protein, eggs and egg whites, meat, dairy, fish, normal food have to facilitate the same kind of muscle building that collagen would. So I think that's very important to remember because when you talk to most people and they are talking about collagen protein, nearly all of them are taking it under the assumption that it's improving performance and or rebuilding a muscle. And that's, there's nothing that, that says that's true. 
So we could say that collagen is an inferior protein compared to others. Like the most official, this is not nutrition term, the most official protein or like the most protein protein you can get is an egg. Is that what you told me? Okay. So, but there's all these other sources of protein. So thinking about the paint, like collagen, that would be like what type of paint or, you know, like beef or a burger or whatever. How does that compare to like an egg? Let's use the color analogy. Let's say that if you wanted to make any shade of red, you would have to have all eight colors available to you to do that, to make any shade. But if you take white out or if the can of white paint is only a fourth of the way full rather than all of the way full, you could make most shades, but not all of them. So I don't want to call it inferior because it does have some of the amino acids that the muscle needs to rebuild, but it lacks the quantity that some other proteins have that would be better, right? That's important to remember. Let's loop this back to your friends who have magical hair growth after taking collagen. The biggest question that I don't think anyone, at least not to my knowledge, has been able to answer is this with that anecdotal evidence. Did your hair grow better? Did your skin elasticity improve? Did you have better nail growth? Did you have all of these benefits because now you started taking more protein in general or was it the actual collagen? I don't know if anyone has been able to answer that and that personally, and take this for what it's worth, I'm not saying that you should take this because you know I happen to study nutrition, but that's been my biggest skepticism is it's like, okay, well, let's let's look at your diet whenever this happened. And again, if this even matters, <laughs> you went from in the morning having a muffin and a latte at home, and then at lunch, you might have the rest of your mac and cheese off your kid's plate and a few little bites of hot dogs and then whatever you guys eat as a family for dinner and some popcorn at night. But now you're doing the same thing, but you're adding protein into your coffee in the morning. You're having some protein around lunch via some sort of you know, bone broth collagen supplement mix that you're drinking. And then you're also having protein at dinner and you have another little bone broth thing at, at in the evening or collagen peptide thing in the evening because you, you've read that that's kind of what you're supposed to do is take it over the course of multiple days. So now your protein intake, which is responsible for the growth of hair and skin elasticity and nails and all these other things, has went from being 25 grams in a day to 100 so it's what came first, chicken or the egg, cart before the horse, nobody really knows which of these things caused the other. And I think that that, if anybody really cared, <laughs> is the thing you've got to ask. And I guess when it boils down to it, the thing that you're really trying to evaluate, and I think the thing that everyone asks about when they're asking about supplements of any kind is, am I wasting my money? And the answer there is, I don't know. It depends on what you believe. And placebo is very powerful. I will say this though, you can get a lot of really great protein just from food. Chicken or the egg, I don't know, but that's the lowdown on collagen. Other questions? All right. Thank you for joining us for another Q&A on the Valley Peak Nutrition Podcast. We will have many more of these this year. There have been a lot of questions coming in towards the end of the year, so I'm looking forward to covering those. If you have questions, you can always send those to us at info at v2pnutrition.com, and we would love to tackle them. It's good to have you back. Thank you. Have a great new year. Yeah, I do have some long gray hairs. Thank you.